0: Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. What does the United States look like these days if you're on the outside looking in? Let's get to the bottom line. Have you ever wondered how your country would look from a totally different perspective? Well, that's what we're doing today with the United States. Gun violence, inequality and race, far-right populism, America's retreat from the world, forever wars. Everything is on the table with our special guest today. He is Gerard Arode, who served as a French diplomat for more than three decades. He served as France's ambassador to the United States, the United Nations, and Israel. And he was the French negotiator on the Iranian nuclear issue. Ambassador Road, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Let me just start, you took this tweet down, but there was a tweet that you issued once that I found very compelling. He said, after Brexit, after Trump, a world is collapsing. And your response to that was, the content was right, maybe the framing was wrong. But I look at that and and, and say, you know, that that was a world collapsing. My question now is, is that world coming back? You know,
1: actually, I I think I was right on the substance, but I was certainly not right as a diplomat uh, to say (laughs) it. Uh, It was not criticizing Donald Trump. It was simply that I realized, uh, you know, on the 8th of November 2016, that all the Western world... Uh, the U.K. and the U.S., and I was thinking of my own country, was facing a global crisis. A rebellion of 35, 40 percent of our citizens against the system. They consider that the system is rigged and they are ready to toss the table. And I don't think it has, it has changed in any way.
0: Well, part of the framing of Donald Trump that he came in structurally was what he defined as America first. When you look at Joe Biden and his administration has come in, and now they've taken the helm uh, of foreign policy and economic policy, I guess the question is, it, it, it's America what, in your, in your sense?
1: Well, actually, any country uh, at any moment is America first or France first. You know, foreign policy is defending the interest of your own country. The problem was that when Trump was saying America first, actually, it meant America alone. Basically, alliances don't matter. Uh, we we are simply defending our own interest without taking care of what you're caring about, allies, partners, about history, and and so on. So with Joe Biden, what we are expecting is it will be America first, but it will be America part of a community uh, first, the community of democratic nations, NATO, and the other. Uh, multilateral organizations, but also the U.S. as a stakeholder of, of the humankind, if I may say.
0: You, you and I had a conversation with a group of people once. We were talking about American power, Chinese power, European power uh, in the world, and and it came up that power is often like uh, the value of a stock in a stock market. It, it's the value of future expectations. And if you looked at the power of america and what people thought about its future it wasn't it 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 didn't feel as robust as say china where you look at you know china's future returns what china is becoming how it's growing what it's going to be china was getting a premium on its power today how would you advise uh, a government like the biden administration to turn that around
1: no first uh, first i do think it's very important On one side, not underestimate American power. I I really, I'm personally, I do believe that the U.S. keep uh, will remain the the first power in the world for the coming decades. Uh, You know, there are so many uh, assets in this country, so many, so much creativity. You know, from the universities to the business community, Uh, and. The second advice would be not overestimate China. You know, really, I I do believe that right now people are making China a sort of a monster, you know, which wouldn't commit any mistakes, which wouldn't face any problem. Actually, China has its own problems. First, a demographic disaster. You know, China is moving, is going through a demographic uh, transition in 20 years uh, that we, we went through in one century. Uh, there are social problems. Hundreds uh, of Chinese are still living in an abject poverty. You have the debt of the um, the state uh, the state companies and so on and so on. So no, China is not. Uh, going to dominate the world. Uh, China is a country which is a powerful, powerful country, Uh, but uh, really the U.S. will remain the main power in the coming decades.
0: So as you look at what America would use that power for, if you look at things like Hong Kong and China gutting, you know, the trappings of of Hong Kong's democracy, you look at the treatment of Uyghurs, which the United States has called as genocidal policies against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, and you look at these various aspects, and we've just seen uh, the the uh, Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, meet with the Chinese. Have a t- at the same time, those foreign policy and human rights concerns are going on, China is an enormous trading partner of the United States, and or- enormously involved with you know global health, climate change. I'm just interested, because you've always been an interest-driven commentator in foreign policy. How is what is how do you get the equilibrium right between hardcore interests and then values you care about whether they're human rights, whether they are, you know, how we work together on climate change. How do you get that equilibrium right?
1: Well, first, uh, I think that um, the Biden administration, will have to build a stable relationship with China. It will be much more complicated than it was uh, with the USSR. Uh, because there won't be a a bamboo curtain uh, falling uh, in Asia somewhere, Uh, because, first, uh, you have the intensity of the economic relationship between the U.S. and and China, and there won't be a, a decoupling between the two economies. The second point is that most of the Asian countries don't want to be obliged to have to choose between us and them. And uh, the third element also is that China is not an ideological, an ideological threat towards the free world. There is no Chinese Communist Party uh, in, in Europe. Uh, there is no ideological challenge. So it will be a complicated, a complicated balance to find. There will be containment, there will be a, a, a healthy dose also of, of engagement. As for the human rights, it will be a pro- it will be a problem, and the U.S. will have also to find uh, uh, really how not to go too far uh, while not while being faithful to its to, it, to their values. You know, I'm going to sound a bit French, a bit cynical, but I don't think that the the Biden administration will allow the human rights issue to undermine a relationship as financially, economically, strategically important as the relationship with China. They, the Americans know, the, the administration knows that China is not going to change its policy, uh, human rights policy. Uh, it's not going to become a Western democracy uh, in, the, in the coming decades. So in, uh, the U.S. will have uh, to have a relationship with an authoritarian, an authoritarian China.
0: Would you would you frame that in a similar way? You know, when I'm listening to you, I'm sort of thinking of the relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Jamal Khashoggi issues, which were a big campaign issue for Joe Biden. He said he wouldn't deal with the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's now dealing with it. But, but Saudi U.S. relations are largely on track. They've gotten by that. Is, is that a similar case in your mind? Oh, you can
1: you can even go beyond that because uh, China is, I think, twenty times, one hundred times more important to the U.S. Uh, than, than Saudi than Saudi Arabia. You know, really, and you have also uh, a democratic administration. And democratic administration during the six first months or the first year, usually, it's very keen on defending human rights. And after a while, you know, really, remember Brzezinski, You know, after after Kissinger, uh, uh, under Carter, and after a while, you know, the administration is obliged also to take into account the cold reality, uh, the cold reality of the world.
0: Ambassador, one of the issues you dealt with both at home in France, but also when you were ambassador at the United Nations and the United States, was our uh, allied efforts on terrorism. Uh, Many people think terrorism sort of hijacked uh, and distracted the foreign policy establishment from a lot of other threats. How would you frame those years uh, that maybe are continuing in which terrorism, both domestically inside France, uh, against the United States and and, and against other of our allies— you know, was such a prominent feature of our foreign policy and national security policy?
1: Well, you know, uh, I think it's a, it, it's a question, of course, for the American foreign policy, also for the French foreign policy. As you may know, we have deployed, we are deploying soldiers, of uh, several thousand soldiers in Africa to find terrorist groups. But at the end of the day, like you in Afghanistan, uh, the question may be raised also for the French involvement in Africa, since we have been in Mali now for nearly eight years. Is it possible to win a war against terrorism uh, really uh, this way? Is there a military solution uh, in a fight uh, in our fight against against terrorism, or we may be doomed to spend uh, decades uh, fighting, killing people? and seeing other people coming, taking their place. So, I think what we could have uh, uh, with the Biden administration, and it's something that I do hope, will be the rehabilitation of diplomacy. Uh, Really, uh, I don't say negotiation with with terrorists, but simply going back to the the roots of, of terrorism and working with local governments. Uh, you know, that local governments actually are the, the first victims of terrorism. Uh, so how can we work with these governments instead of sending our, our, our soldiers? Uh, because I think we can draw the lesson of our involvement. Simply, it doesn't work.
0: You know, if Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, former National Security Advisor to President Carter was around, but a very prominent uh, national security commentator, he would critique America's forever war in Afghanistan, or maybe what the French were doing uh, in Africa today, as like relics of a neo-colonial past, that we have uh, delusions of imperial grandeur, that we're continuing to deploy force, um, you know, indefinitely, driven more by inertia than strategic need. How would you respond to Brzezinski if he were sitting across from you?
1: Actually, I've been, uh, you know, sitting across uh, uh, of course, because he, he was quite an impressive analyst, and in a sense, I share his point of view. <laughs> <laughs> I am not sure that it's colonial uh, uh, hangover, uh, but I think uh, it was. Uh, it has been a mistake to think that we can solve with our soldiers uh, a lot of problems. I think there has been an excessive militarization of the foreign policy, first of the U.S. Also, of course but also, in a sense, uh, with France. You know the the saying, if you have a big hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And and I do think that it's something which could be uh, really, uh, which could be said of American foreign policy. And I I, I want, I rush to add also of the French foreign policy. We need diplomats and maybe that we need less soldiers.
0: Let me switch tracks, Gerard, for a moment. You know, since you've left Washington as ambassador, you've become a very sought-after commentator. You appear uh, on TV networks, people follow your tweets, and they come with a kind of um, insight and, and raw honesty about America that I think uh, we're not used to, whether it's about race after the George Floyd murders, whether it's about inequality in this country. And I'd just love to get a sense... As you look at this nation from an offshore perspective, and you look at these domestic issues of identity and tension, uh, and the divides in the nation now made so much worse during this pandemic, I- I'd be interested in, you know, sort of your, your notions of, 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 of what's wobbly and what's strong. No,
1: first, I, I, I live in the U.S. I've decided to live in the U.S., uh, so it means that I love this country, uh, and and for me, again, I think I, I, I said it in the, in the beginning of our, of our interview, uh, the fact is that I'm struck how the, Amer- the Americans, uh, how the United States uh, are facing the same problems in very comparable terms to, Euro- to the European countries and especially to France. And uh, most of the issues, of course, uh, you have national circumstances which are quite different. The fact that the U.S. is a country uh, of, of immigrants, much more than, than France, but again, you have the rebellion of some of our citizens against the, the systems, and you have also communities uh, which are, uh, I think, rightly so, uh, which are really asking for the end of uh, or any uh, discrimination, and that's that's a common fight in, in Western democracies. And my dream, frankly, my dream will be that. The Western democracies, in a sense, work together, uh, really uh, admit that they have common failures, uh, and, are, and try uh, to, to solve this issue or to fight, face these issues. One common element that I see everywhere also, in terms of the recipes, if I may say, is I really do believe that we are uh, going at the, uh, an end of a cycle, which means the end of the neoliberal era. You know, this end where you had in America, you had Reagan, Clinton, and and Obama, in a sense, and in Europe, you you had Thatcher Blair. You know, this idea that taxes are bad, the state is bad, the market is a god. I I do think, and and that free free trade is is always positive. I do think that our citizens have been telling us everywhere, uh, in the streets of Paris, like in the, in, in, in the U.S., enough is enough. Uh, we have, uh, in a sense, to change our ways. And what is striking for me is to see that Biden administration, little by little, you know, is shifting into this, uh, this new direction. And, and that's, in a sense, it's quite, it's quite exciting. And as usual, the U.S. are the first one uh, to, to show the way.
0: You you did tweet. I uh, found it cute uh, that you know what's wrong with socialism. Um, what were you trying to say? Is that is that your comment on you know broad redistributive policies, our health care policies? You know this debate about socialism in America. It, it, were you just saying, hey, that's what's worked for France?
1: Well, you know, there, every country has its irrational aspects, and in the U.S., the world, the world socialism. You know, it's it's part of these irrational fears. of of the society. Uh, It depends what you are putting behind the world. Again, I love the U.S., and uh, uh, what I'm going to say is part of my love, uh, for instance, uh, as a European, and not as a Frenchman, there is something that I can't understand, is that that you don't have a a socialized healthcare system. You know, your healthcare, to be frank, you know, I have benefited from uh, Uh, the the dedication of of nurses and and doctors in America and their talents, but it was awful. The cost, uh, the the bureaucratic complexity, and and so on. So that's an example. All European countries have a socialized healthcare system. It costs less, much less, actually. Uh, You are spending 17% of your GDP on health. We are spending 11%. Uh, That's a good example where, actually socialism, quote-unquote, you know, quote-unquote, because even the UK, which is not really a socialist country, uh, has a socialist socialized healthcare system. So that would be a good example where socialism, uh, whatever you call it, is not that bad.
0: Um, one of the other areas i like to turn to is Iran. You dealt with Iran so closely, and I think, you know, again, going back to uh, the Henry Kissingers, to Brent Scowcrofts, to the Zbigniew Brzezinski's, they would often talk about states having defining challenges. You know, there are a lot of challenges out there, but sometimes certain uh, challenges are, are, are very large and defining for that era. I sort of feel like China is one, Iran may be another. I'd love to get your insights into that because right now we've gone through a whiplash where the Obama administration nego- negotiated, uh, along with the French, along with the British, along with the P5 plus one, the JCPOA, the joint uh, uh, plan on, on Iran's nuclear program, uh, Donald Trump took the United States out of that. Now their questions are going back in. What are your insights, not only as an observer of the U.S. side of that, but of Iran's game in this?
1: To be, to be, to be frank, I'm, I'm quite worried. Uh, I've always, you know, again, the the nuclear deal with Iran was a compromise, and it was supposed only to handle the nuclear issue. I, fe- I think that one of the mistakes of the Obama, of the Obama administration in 2015 uh, was not immediately after the, the this deal to, to address the other, issue of con- the other issues of concern uh, raised by the Iranian behavior, terrorism, uh, missiles, uh, ballistic, ballistic uh, activities, uh, and also the regional, uh, the regional uh, activities. So Trump went out of the agreement and now the question is how to go back to it, and it's not easy because on the Iranian the Iranians feel grieved, the Iranians, and rightly so in a way, the Iranians are entering a presidential a presidential campaign, and on the American side, it's not possible either simply to go back to the to the agreement uh, because uh, the US can't ignore uh, the really the, the the worries, the concerns expressed by the Gulf monarchies and by Israel. Uh, they can't also ignore the other issues or concerns I was referring to. So it's a very complicated equation. And uh, I, I really, I'm not sure that actually both sides will succeed uh, to uh, to go back uh, to, to a negotiation, to the negotiation table. Uh, you know, for, for a lot of Iranians now, they may be able to say, why are we going to make Concessions to the U.S. If in 2024 Trump is back and and will inflict us uh, new sanctions, so it's 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 one of these very very difficult issues uh, where diplomacy uh, is is key, and uh, you may know that actually Europeans are trying to be the go-between uh, between Tehran and 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 Washington. Uh, but uh, we are, to be frank, we are at the mercy of an incident. There are radicals on both sides, and especially on the Iranian side, uh, who are ready to try to derail any idea of, of a new deal. Uh, because in Iran, of course, the U.S. is the symbol, in a sense, of, of the revolution. The anti-Americanism is the symbol of, of the revolution.
0: One of the questions I have about France, um, Germany, a lot of our allies in the world is that they uh, saw America sort of, you know, kick them in the teeth uh, in the last few years and, and, and hug uh, a lot of uh, complicated people like uh, Duderte in the Philippines, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. What is the state of the relationship out, you know, out there? D- just, we've seen President Macron talk about the need for a European defense capacity that is that is driven by Europeans and not the Americans. I'm interested in whether or not that those sets of relationships are now entering a new phase, or whether you think they can snap back uh, into the kind of the close coordination and you know the mutual trust that used to be.
1: You know, I. And fortunately, I think that the Europeans are most of the Europeans are in a denial. Hmm. Uh, basically, uh, their dream is simply, as you said, to snap back. Uh, because for the, for the Europeans, in a sense, uh, the American leadership is quite comfortable. And uh, if the Europeans were following Macron, you know, the French president saying we need to have some European strategic autonomy. it would. What does it mean? In concrete terms, for the Europeans, for Eastern European countries, uh, really like Poland or the Baltic states, uh, it would mean that they really they would be worried about losing the American military guarantee. And, and you can understand, seen from this country with their tragic history and with the behavior, the Russian behavior, that they can be rightly uh, worried and they prefer to have the military guarantee to the French or the British guarantee. As for countries like Germany, Italy, and Spain, uh, which are spending between 1% and 1.4% of their GDP on defence, European strategic autonomy would mean more money, spending more money on defence. Mm. So, so having a Biden administration, having such a pro, you know, friendly European, friendly administration towards Europe, I think it's a comfortable uh, pretext or alibi. Uh, for Europeans to tell Macron and to tell the French, you know, oh, as usual, you are you are a pain. Uh, Let's go back to business as usual.
0: Well, Gerard Arode, former ambassador of France, United States, we really appreciate uh, your candor and fascinating perspectives on today's America. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Bye bye. So what's the bottom line? It's always fascinating to hear how the rest of the world looks at the United States. The four years of the Trump administration's America First policies really did turn the world upside down. Today, nations have serious doubts about American leadership. Many people around the world would like to go back to the good old days, but what's done can't be undone. China and Iran will be skeptical about working with Washington on long-term stuff, knowing that the next president could shred everything up again. My guest was right. It would be great if the United States and its allies could become cold-eyed about their interests and priorities and set aside their delusions and distractions and help build a more stable world. But let's face it, delusions and distractions almost always beat reality. And that's The Bottom Line.